strangers, welcome to Iroh's Corner, a space where we agree with Uncle Iroh that sharing tea with a fascinating stranger is one of life's true delights. Today I'm joined by Mike and Laura Ellis, owners of Mount Hope Farms. I first was introduced to Mount Hope Farms when we both actually shared a common brand ambassador whose name is Kala and she's a rock star. And I went to check with Kala at New Seasons and see how she was doing and bring her some Live Bar product. And she happened to be at the time demoing Mount Hope Farms. And I was like, well, what are you demoing? And she told me the story of the farm and she had me try the jam with some local cheese and a local cracker brand. And it was absolutely amazing. And I immediately bought some of their strawberry lavender spread and I have been hooked ever since. So I was so excited when Mike and Laura agreed to come on the show. As some of you know, I am a farm girl myself and grew up on a wheat farm in eastern Washington. And so the chance to talk about farming and different crops and also just food and jam, things near and dear to my heart. So I'm so excited to share our conversation. Welcome to the show today, Laura and Mike. So excited to have you here. Thank you so much for having us. We're super excited. Yep. Yep. Awesome. Well, I would love if you could start by just telling us about Mount Hope Farms. Yeah. So we are a third generation family farm here in Malala, Oregon. And it's me and my husband, Mike. My name's Laura, like you said. And we farm with our two young children. We have two small boys and Mike's parents. And we're the third generation on the farm. And your family are fifth generation farmers, right? In Oregon. Yep. In Oregon. And so we grow a variety of crops. Mike and I specialize in growing Oregon table grapes that we sell to fresh market. Mm -hmm. And we also grow aronia berries and hascap berries, which are newer to the area where some of the first larger growers of those. And we use those and fruit that we source from farmers and neighbors that we know and trust. And we do a line of fruit spreads that are essentially low organic sugar jams that are meant to go with cheese and cocktails and cooking and just be an everyday staple. So we do all kinds of things. And then with Mike's parents, we farm larger commodity crops like grass seed. Grass seed, radish seed, clover seed. And Mm. a lot of that goes into cover crop markets as well as forage markets. We've kind of moved away from the turf grass markets. Yeah. So we're very, very, very diversified. And that's come about because we are kind of learning what we like and what we want to do. And then also it's sort of been a matter of survival and kind of combining the different generations together. So it just makes for a very busy life. And lots of, we're always going and always trying new things and figuring out new markets. And it's it's definitely been an adventure. And we've been doing this, Mike and I, together since we moved back here in 2012. So that's a really broad synopsis of, <laughs> of us and what we're doing. Awesome. I love it. That's great. And can you, I like to do this at the beginning, just so that everybody gets a chance to hear, do you have anything coming up later this year that you want to highlight? And then also where's the best place people can find you both locally and can they find you online and how should they follow what upcoming news that you have? Sure. So right now we're in the middle of harvest. So things are super busy. It's July. So in October, we have an event called the wedge that's put on by the Oregon Cheese Guild. And Mm -hmm. we are going to be there for that. They're going to do that in person again this year. And that's a really special event because it's things that are Oregon cheese and all things that are related and pair well with cheese. So we love that event. We also have a new product, a cranberry marionberry sauce that's going to come out in new seasons market stores in the fall, kind of late fall, early holiday season. And we also are working with farm to fork tours and doing a few small tours with them and sort of opening things up a little more as it feels safe and as we kind of get our schedule together. So and the best way to find us would be on our website. And we're also in all new seasons markets and all market of choice stores, Mm -hmm. as well as the Portland area Whole Foods. Awesome. And do you have an Instagram account as well? Yeah, we actually, Mike has his own and it's really fun because he goes more in depth with all of the actual farming and what goes into it. Oh, awesome. It's fun. He does a great job with it. And it's so funny because he's so 
quiet normally, but he's so good at explaining everything and does such a great job with it. And then we have at Mount Hope Farms, our farm Instagram account where we put up recipes and, you know, just what's going on with our family and all about our products and what we grow and such. So two different ways to follow us there. Great. Yeah, I'll link those in the show notes. That's that's awesome. I love it. And I have to say that I love your strawberry lavender jam. That is just like, oh man, it's just like my favorite catch-all used with cheese. I love to mix it into oh, buttercream yeah. frosting when I make macarons. I've love the frosé recipe that you have with it. Oh man, that is just, that's like our go-to jam in our house. So oh, I just have good. to throw that out there. It's so oh, delicious. Thank you. I'm so glad that you like that one. Yeah, it goes well with so many different types of cheeses. And what's really fun about our fruit spreads is you can use them as like an everyday jam, but we've made them so they're a little bit more elevated. They mm -hmm. um, are made with very, very low amounts of organic sugar. That was really important to me. And then we do a twist on originals. So like instead of just strawberry, we have strawberry lavender and things that kind of pair well together and that are seasonal together. Mm -hmm. And I think that really elevates the flavor and making cocktails has been my new favorite thing with our fruit spreads. And it sounds kind of funny if you haven't done it before, but really it's just, you know, it's just a little bit of sugar and fruit and mm -hmm. you're taking that or stirring that or blending it. And anyway, it's really fun. So thank you for trying that. Oh yeah. Yeah. The hottest day of the year was when we broke out. I got the strawberries and some jam and some rosé whipped it up in the blender. And I was like, this is Perfect. Our friends drank it very quickly. <laughs> oh, good. Good, good, good. <laughs> well, I would love to hear more about the history of Mike's grandparents' farm in Malala. And my family are fifth generation farmers as well. So I love hearing stories just about the origins of a farm. So can you tell me more about the, the farm that you guys are on now and its history? Yeah, absolutely. I always say we're fifth generation farmers in Oregon because when I've done genealogy work as Many generations back, as I can trace, we had farmers in the family. When we came out here, when uh, I believe it was my great-great-grandpa mm -hmm. came out on the Oregon Trail, they settled down around the Dallas Falls City area. My family's kind of moved around throughout the valley over the generations. My great-grandparents, they lived in the Camby area, and they grew lilies, glads, and pansies. They bred their own varieties oh, wow. and sold them mail order all across the world. We actually have some of the old ads from that business, and they did that throughout the Depression. And I can remember uh, being told that great-grandpa would, would say uh, people would buy flowers before they would buy food. It was a way of bringing back a little bit of normalcy to their life. Wow. And then my grandpa, he uh, was much more oriented toward production and liked more of the simplicity of growing grain rather than all of the hand labor and uh, meticulous records that went into breeding flowers. Mm -hmm. And so he kind of broke away from my uh, great grandparents farm and uh, Camby is just the next town over. So he kind of slowly worked his way over towards Malala, picking up rental ground where he could. He bought and sold several different farms over the years until he eventually landed on this one just outside of Malala. And that was in 1962 when he uh, bought this farm. And one of the first things he did out here, because he always liked having good food around, was he started planting several apple trees, pear trees, cherry trees, prunes, plums, grapes, anything that he could eat because, and it wasn't for uh, ag production. It was because he wanted to have good food around to eat for mm -hmm. his wife, my dad, and uh, all the grandkids that ended up coming later on. And so we've been out here on this farm since 62. My dad made kind of the shift into growing grass seed in the 70s, which grandpa thought was a horrible bad weed at the time. They'd fought it in all of their grain fields. And as soon as he saw my dad make a few bucks doing that, Every field had to go into that, and that's how we got into uh, growing seed crops. And in the last 10 to 20 years, we've uh, shifted into doing some radish seed that goes into cover crop markets. Mm -hmm. We do red clover, which is used for pasture, forage, hay, and it goes into the cover crop market as well. And some different uh, forage grasses, cover crop grasses. And this year, we just put in a new crop to us that's Basilia that's grown for seed. And it is an incredible pollinator attractant as oh. well as great cover crop. It uh, helps aggregate the soil and improve water infiltration. And so it's got benefits for soil health as well as it's great for the bees. It's beautiful too. Oh, it's yeah. all it's purple everything was dark in purple bloom. flower yeah 
just gorgeous. Wow. I might need to come on a farm tour here. <laughs> that would be oh, really yeah. fun. You should. <laughs> You're invited. <laughs> awesome. It's the right time of year when everything's in bloom and you can't beat the beat it out here on the farm. Wow. And then how did you start farming? You guys at some point started farming with your family and then started your own farm and crops on the land. Can you tell me about that process and what it looked like to to farm with your family and and get into the the whole farming world for as your own livelihood? Oh yeah. For me it was something I was raised with. I started work with dad, with grandpa when I was, oh, probably about eight years old. Uh, one mm-hmm. of the summers, my dad grabbed me by the shoulders. I'm shorthanded. I need you to drive this truck for me. Here's the gas. Here's the brake. <laughs> yep. This steering wheel. I was kind of propped on a seat and all that I could see was blue sky up above me and said, go straight. Don't go too fast. He was picking rocks out of the field because they're hard on equipment. And that was my start in uh, farming. And my pay for the day was I got to pick out what we had for lunch. <laughs> for an eight-year-old boy, it was a pretty good win. I thought that yeah. was pretty Anyway, I grew up farming with them. I went to school at Eastern Oregon University and studied ag, which for me, it was a workaround. It was a small campus and it had a satellite program through Oregon State University. Mm. the premier ag university in our state. And so I could go there for the price of Eastern Oregon University, which was far cheaper at the time and have a nice small campus, which suited my personality better. And that's where I met Laura. And we settled down over there until in 2012, dad was ready to, he was needing some help back here on the farm. Grandpa had slowed down and he had officially retired. How, mm-hmm. how old was he at that time? Was he uh, 90, 89? Mid to late 80s at that point. Yeah. And we were also expecting our first baby. So it all just kind of fell into place where we wanted to be closer to family when we were expecting our first child. I don't have any family in the area. I'm from Alaska. And so I also grew up on a small family homestead where we raised Angus cattle for beef and Mm. a large garden, things like that. But it wasn't our main living. And we had always talked about how do we get back into living out of town, living in the country? How do we how do we start farming? Mm-hmm. And we were trying to figure that out. And we had started our own careers and everything over there. And we loved it. But we decided we want to come back, be part of things over here, and then kind of be the next generation to sort of take over and work together with his parents and mm-hmm. figure out what do we need to do to keep this going for generations to come. And so it really all fell into place. And we moved back over here in 2012 had our son. And then in, well, you started, I mean, you were working right away with your dad. I was working before we officially moved over yeah. here. I was yeah. shooting <laughs> back and forth where I'd stay Five over hours. on the farm for a week or two and then head back to Legrand for a weekend or a yeah. week and help you with stuff. And then back over here for a couple of weeks to and then, get stuff caught up. And- yeah. And then we finally made it back over here and moved in to the farm. We live uh, in one house and then Mike's grandpa lived in another on the place mm-hmm. and had our baby and all the while kind of were figuring out what do we want to do. And Mike really was looking at a lot of different crops, a lot of different fruits and berries that you could grow on a smaller amount of acreage. Because what we were seeing was, while it seems like our farm is very big, it's tiny compared to so many others out there. Mm-hmm. And most of our, most yeah. of our neighbors are at least three, if not five to 10 times the size that our farm is. Yeah. So trying to compete with the efficiencies of scale that they have in the same crops that they're growing, there just wasn't a good path forward. And the other thing that had hurt our farm over the years, we had had long-term rentals with a lot of local landlords throughout the area that we had been on that ground for 30, 40 plus years farming it for them. Well, they would pass away and their kids would be wanting to sell it off and get money right Mm -hmm. up front. We didn't have the resources to buy those pieces of ground and they weren't adjoining our farm. So it meant moving equipment down the road from one from our farm to those places. And so they would sell and we would lose those rental fields and anything that would come open to rent really was pretty beat up ground that we were going to sink more money into getting it back into production and fixed up than we were going to make in any short amount of time. Yeah. And so we were really pushed to look for how to pivot the farm to 
survive into the next generation, how to make a living off of the ground that we can own and control. And we're still, you know, obviously we're still transitioning it because we're still doing the the seed crops. And I think that we always will to an extent, Mm -hmm. but we just knew that we had to do things different for the years to come. And there's that saying that for farmers, you're, what is it that you're borrowing your land from your children? Mm -hmm. And so we kept thinking, what do we need to do to make this so if our kids or some part of the next generation wants to do this, that they can do it and be successful at it and be a part of things. And so Mike uh, started doing the table grapes. And there's a lot of wine grapes that are grown in the Willamette Valley, but not a lot of table grapes. And they're... Well, most of the people would tell us that table grapes don't grow out right. here. It's mm-hmm. not the right climate for them. They would say it needs to be really hot and dry. It needs to be like it is in California. Well, they said that about the wine grapes up until somebody actually made it work. Right. right. And I actually had one local produce guy tell us that he'd seen a lot of people go broke trying what we were doing after I'd already planted them. <laughs> And he said, there's no way you can get good quality grapes to grow up here. It just won't work. Well, and it's also, you know, it's it's expensive to get them started, to put them in, the trellising, mm. all of the hand labor. And what I will say is we have been so lucky because Mike's parents and his family have been incredibly supportive in what we're doing and in the new things that we're trying. And they've been there helping us and encouraging us. And, you know, it's it's never completely smooth when you're having to kind of iron new things out with family and stuff, but they've been amazing. And oh, yeah. that's that's one reason why we've been starting to see success <laughs> and been able to keep going. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's a reason why you started doing the table grapes and then the aronia and the hascap were sort of like that too, mm-hmm. weren't they? Well, and with the grapes, we'd already had some grapes growing out here. There were a couple of old plants when my grandpa moved on to the farm that have to be concords that are close to 100 years old. Oh, wow. Planted some steubens, which are a juice grape, and some interlocking, which is a seedless table grape out here over the years. And I grew up seeing those thrive out here year after year, they seldom missed a crop. I said, if they're doing that good on this site, table grapes should work. If we get the right varieties, if we do our homework on it, we can find something that'll work. And I feel like we have found something uh, that's working on some of our varieties out. There were a few of them that we tried that we learned uh, what not to look for. But but with anything, when you start out, there's always a few of those. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, and we, you know, when we first did the grapes, we were kind of thinking about doing maybe grape juice or, or different products with them, but it turns out that they have done really well in the fresh market and people look forward to them every season because they are different. They are special. You know, they, they're fresh. You're, you're buying them in a store that's, you know, 30 minutes away from our farm. Uh They haven't been gassed to hold them. They, they're basically going from vineyard to store in the matter of hours or a day or yeah, Yeah. or a week. And it's, it's been a really good experience for us. And so anyway, long story short, we've been doing a lot of new things to, uh, how do you want to explain it? Kind of keep us keep us going, yeah. do something for the next generation and to allow us to work with the acreage that we own and that we live on. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, also with the grapes, they also were some of what got you prompted in going in the fruit spread because my grandpa, I still, I love him, but uh, he would come out when he was alive and walk through the little test plot. It was a half acre that we put in of grapes. He would walk through that and he'd shake his head and say, oh, there's going to be a lot of grapes out here. What are you ever going to do with all those do? grapes? What are you... <laughs> With all those grapes, how are you going to get rid of all those grapes? And it would just... And it was it was because it was new. It was new. It was know. something different and it wasn't what he was used to. And it was part of it, I think, was just to get a reaction out of me and Laura's. He loved getting reactions out of people. Mm-hmm. But it also prompted us of, okay, if we can't move these fresh, if there's any kind of a hang up, we've got to have a plan B on them. We got to have some way of making them shelf stable so that we have options. We have some time and some options. And that's where you started working with fruit spreads and doing some of that is it was 
to give us a backup option if something didn't work out. Right. Well, and along with the grapes, we also, when we first started out, we decided, okay, let's try going to farmer's markets and see what's successful there, kind of build our customer base up and see what they like, what they don't like, see what we're good at, and see what we enjoy doing. And, and it gives us great customer feedback immediately. Right. Uh-huh. If something's good, you're going to know it. And if it's not, you're going to know, it. know it right <laughs> yeah. now. Well, and so we, along with doing the crops, we actually did pastured lamb, meat, and pork. And so we would take that to the market and we're like, you know, maybe this is something that we want to get into. And we loved doing that and we had some success with it, but we realized, okay, we've really got to choose. Is it going to be that we are selling meats and do it CSA style or do Mm -hmm. we want to stick with the crops and, and growing things? And ultimately we decided, you know, with the acreage that we have and with how small a footprint we really have in the big scheme of things, we can do the best with what we've got by growing, you know, crops and, and by, by creating products with them. And so that's where we started finding success is we would take, you know, our, and we had a market garden too. I remember Mm -hmm. that we would go out and harvest vegetables and stuff. And that was great too. But I will say there are so many wonderful and talented vegetable growers and that farmers are doing out it there. At scale oh my gosh! Have yeah, the equipment and the resources to mm-hmm. do it without killing themselves. Right. It was so competitive, and I was like, you know, one day when we were up at like four thirty or five in the morning, getting what were we getting like zucchini or something. Or like cucumbers or something. I was like, I don't think I can keep doing this, especially because we had our baby and Mike's parents were coming over very early to help watch him while we went to market. And I'm like, we have got to figure something else out. And so we started narrowing it down Mm -hmm. and we decided, you know, we want to do the grapes fresh market and we want to take the aronia berries and the hascat berries that we grow and any other heirloom fruit that we grow out here and put it into a product and make it shelf stable. Uh That's how we got started. (laughs) It was a process. Awesome. That's great. And I know my dad's going to listen to the episode and he's going to say, Jesse, ask them how many acres they farm. So I'm curious how many acres you have that are more the cover crops. And then how many acres do you have for the higher yields, the the grapes and the other specialty crops? Oh, uh, right now we're running just under two acres of the table grapes. Okay. There's there's a few uh, rows that are into experimental varieties, ones that we are testing out. When we initially planted, we had one variety that was very susceptible to uh, fungal disease. Mm. And after fighting that for three or four years, and each year, the more I help I tried to give it, the worse it got. I couldn't stand to look at it anymore. And I said, we're going to take that out. We're going to try a few new varieties and see if we can find one that fits. And we're still kind of doing that with that spot. So it cuts the acreage that's in production down a little bit. It's not a lot, but at the same time, grapes will yield a lot of fruit for every acre. Mm -hmm. And so it equates to a, a sizable amount of work to retrain, to prune, to do the leafing and canopy management, to do the hand harvest and all the deliveries and everything. It's labor intensive. Oh, yeah. But when you love what you're doing and love the crop, it's not as much work then. Yeah. And then the the rest of the crops, we have a test plot in of Hascap. That's probably about a quarter acre. Those were all acquired from uh, the late Dr. Maxine Thompson. And she was doing breeding work with them. And these were pre-release trials. So they're mm. not named varieties. They were numbered varieties that hadn't been released yet. And some of them may have been released now. They may not have, but I all that I've got to go off of is the numbers. I don't know what the if they were released, what the names of them are. Oh wow! And then the Ronia, we put in an acre and a half over at my parents' place of that as a test plot, and that stuff is an aggressive grower in our climate. It can yield a lot of fruit. The only problem we had there was just uh, finding a market for it because we did not have a concept of just how much fruit it was going to yield for us. Well, and it's very, we like it now. Our family likes it because we eat it quite a bit, but it's an acquired taste because it's very earthy Mm. and can be mealy when you- And astringent. And astringent. has a mouth drying feel to it. But But it's so, it's packed full of antioxidants. It's a super berry. 
Okay. And it's, there's a lot of studies going into it right now where, I mean, it, it's packed full of lots of things that are good for you. There's been a number of studies going on where they're doing it in cancer research to, right. as ways of treating or preventing cancer. There again, it's in a study phase. So saying what their results are, that's for them to publish. But I've also seen with that very, it really depends how it's grown mm. on how that flavor comes out. If it's dry stressed or you haven't put the right fertilizer to it, fed it well, if it has a harsher climate, it will get extremely bitter. It'll get more stringent. It'll get just less palatable, more mealy. Mm -hmm. If you handle it right, it sweetens out a lot more. The bricks goes up on it and uh, actually freezing it tends to mellow the flavors on it a whole lot more too. And I think there's been some studies that have shown that it has even more antioxidants than elderberry. And elderberry is a really big thing right now. It's just yeah. that aronia is, it doesn't have the name behind it right now. Mm-hmm. And you have to know how to use it and how to pair it right in order to be able to palate it. And we, you it's know. It's deceptive too, because it looks like a small blueberry. <laughs> yeah. And you <laughs> pop that into your mouth and it is not <laughs> But, you know, we pair it all the time in smoothies. And so we'll eat them fresh and we really like them now. And then we use them in our fruit spreads. And then we have friends that dry them down and do tea and syrup kits with them. So they're they're a wonderful berry. It's Mm -hmm. just a matter of kind of playing with it. And then we did not fully realize how big the education piece behind it was going to be because nobody really knows what they are. And then nobody knows how to use them. And then we don't want to just sell them fresh and then have people try them and be really disappointed because we haven't been out there telling them, you know, try pairing it with this or try making it. And and so that's been a challenge. But and then Mm. the half cap has been a little bit easier because it's got such a great flavor, especially when you make things with it, that it's just easy to use. And more people, I think, have heard of that, too, kind of. Kind of. Yeah. (laughs) Much easier sell, much more finicky to grow. A slower growing, slower establishing. Right. Okay. Right. Wow. That's, yeah, that's super interesting. Do you ever feel guilty when you eat a snack in a single use plastic? You're like, shoot, I'm really hungry and I needed this in some sort of contained way because I was going somewhere and just holding loose granola in my hand didn't make sense while driving. So I had to eat a snack. It was an energy bar and then it was made of plastic and then I just you know, ruin the earth to have a snack. Well, at LiveBar, we work hard for you to not have to feel that kind of guilt because the bars are wrapped in a home compostable wrapper. We have tested this ourselves. My family members have tested it. Employees have tested it. And you can actually just plant it in your garden or in your compost pile and it will degrade and feed the earth because it's made of cellulose. So you can not only be fueled and solve your hunger problem and your taste buds will not complain either because lip ballers are delicious and you're not hurting the earth. So how cool is that? And Live Bar is now a sponsor of Iro's Corner. So you can get 20% off an order on livebar.com by using code T20, T-E-A 20 and stock up on more or try them for the first time and then compost them in your garden. How cool is that? It's like the full circle of life. You need a snack in the car and you eat your snack and then you plant your snack. Well, the wrapper of your snack. You should eat the snack first. Like, don't be like my dog used to be in like you give him a snack and then he buried it in the ground thinking he was saving it for later. But, you know, that never works out. So eat the Live Bar, then plant the wrapper and you'll be very happy. So again, go to livebar.com and use code T20, T-E-A 20 for 20% off your order. Check them out. Let me know what you think. Going to the the piece about your jams. So, Laura, you started experimenting with jam recipes. Just one thing to make them at home. It's another thing to have them in jars, on the shelf, in the store. So what did it look like to get them from in the kitchen to scale? And, you know, how, how did you find a co-packer? What did that whole process look like to take those to market? Yeah, it was it was quite a long ordeal. It was quite a long journey, but we started doing things under the farm bill. And so what that meant was, is I could make things at our home kitchen as long as we grew the main ingredients. So the fruit Mm -hmm. and you could sell, I think up to like $20,000, which, you know, going to markets, we were not going to hit that, especially just starting out. And so we started doing that and just getting the flavors and the recipes down. And I really also was doing it as a way of when we moved over here, I was 
pregnant. I had just, you know, left my job and it was just a whole new world over here for me because I didn't grow up here. And so I knew that I needed to do something to kind of make my footprint here and be part Uh of things and kind of join in and make this dream, you know, work for me too and make sure I was all in with Mike. And I don't know, it was a really grounding experience too, because I would come up with the recipes and then I really felt like I could take the fruit from the orchard and whatever berries we were growing. And I could really honor the history of the farm and honor Mike's family, but also do something that was unique to me and that was mm-hmm. my own and that I could leave for my kids. Like there was, there would be a part of me in the business. And so I started doing that in our kitchen and working through it. And we sold it at markets and we found out what people liked and what they didn't. And from there, we decided, okay, we'll do a few more specialized events. And so we did like the wedge that that we're actually going to be doing later this year. Uh And that was a bigger event. And we started realizing, okay, through that, and then through some small shop interest, we're like, we need to figure out a way to get into a kitchen where we can be fully licensed so we can go into retail. Because with the farm bill, you could only sell direct like at market or right Mm, off the uh farm. And so I ended up renting a kitchen in one of our local granges that I actually still rent for small batches. Oh, nice. Yeah. And we were licensed and got everything together there. So we could start moving into retail. But it was still me standing at the stove all hours of the day making tin jars <laughs> yep. at a time <laughs> because I was doing them in a different way. I cook the fruit very quickly. So I retain the fresh fruit flavor and I want that to be the star of the product. And then Uh the spices and everything else can kind of fall behind a little bit. And I also water bath can them because that's, that's just how I do things. So I make very, very small batches at, at once. And we quickly realized when we were at the wedge in 2015, I think we were approached by the cheese buyer there. And she said, I I really want to bring you in to the cheese department. And I said, oh, great. How many stores? And she's like, well, how many can you handle? And I go, oh, I I don't know. (laughs) And so after (laughs) talking with her about that, I realized, okay, I really have to get some help so I can make more at once. And so we started looking for a co-packer, but I wanted it to be very hands-on. I didn't want to just give my recipe over and not source the ingredients, not, you know, I didn't want my recipe changed. I wanted everything to stay the same, except I just wanted to make more at once. And we interviewed quite a few people and found one that worked well for us. And it worked well for quite a while. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of bumps in the road because when you're scaling a recipe up, even just a little bit, things change. So you can have a certain amount of cinnamon in a recipe. When you scale it, it's going to say you should put in this much, but in your gut, you know, wow, that's way too much cinnamon. And so you had to like really play with it and had to be there and taste it to get it exactly right. And and we finally started nailing that. And so we would have some of the batches made at the co-packer and then I would still make, and I still do some micro batches in the Grange kitchen. And we actually ended up having to find another new co-packer because ours sold and they upped the minimum orders for your batches to tenfold. Oh gosh. And I was like, there's no way we can't keep up with that. And then also I don't want the quality to suffer because that's still important. We still want to do pretty small batch. And so we ended up finding another, another co-packer who has become a really good friend now and has really worked with us Mm -hmm. and makes things in pretty small batches. And I'm able to be there for it. I source all the fruit. I bring all of that to them. Basically we're doing everything, but well, we're, we're kind of there in the middle of all of it. Yeah. No matter, no matter what. So it's really hands-on. It's just that they let me use that equipment. So we're able to make bigger batches, but it was, it was definitely a process and we've learned a lot. We made a lot of mistakes along the way and we had to pivot quite a bit. And we had to say that some flavors could stay and some had to go. And yeah, it's been, it's been one of the best adventures of my life. You know, I say like, it's my third baby because my it's grown up right alongside my oldest son. And then my youngest was born in 2017. And so it's all my kids have ever known is us running the farm and running the business. And it's been really neat to have them involved 
so heavily with Mike and I, and, you know, they see what I do and they see what he does. And I think that's really, it's empowering to them. And they, they see how money is made. They see how the farm operates and we try to be as transparent as possible while not, while not scaring them about like, oh my gosh, this, this crop looks really bad, you know, but we, we like them to kind of know what's going on. And Mm -hmm. so far it's, they have loved it. It's Mm -hmm. been a a big adventure and it's been, I think it's been the best way for them to grow up for sure. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. Yeah. I have to different type of farm, but growing up on a farm definitely teaches you uh, the connections of working hard and connections to the earth and just knowing that knowing what you're capable of doing, rolling with the punches of the the weather and the <laughs> just <laughs> life. And so, yeah, I'm really grateful for a farm upbringing because it, it really is something special. It is. And, you know, it's made it so I'm able to stay and raise them at home and I'm able to work at the same time. And that's not easy. It's it's definitely hard being a mom and running part of the business. You've got guilt either way you go. Yeah. <laughs> like, I have guilt when I'm working on the business. Oh, I should be doing this with the kids or, you know, and I'm having to learn to get rid of some of that. So it's been a learning process for me. But like I said, it's been one of the biggest adventures of my life. And when things have gotten really tough, especially this last year, when when things changed up, and we couldn't go into stores and demo and all that, it got hard. And I just kept telling myself, you know, if we were to stop this and let it go, I I think it would really be even more difficult. It's Mm -hmm. just become such a big piece of me. And it's not my whole identity, but it's definitely a part of me. And, and Mike has helped me so much with it too. He's he's as big a part of it as I am. We're both really involved in, in everything that goes on. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's that's really cool. I would also love to learn more about what does it mean to, like at Live Bar, we, we're a certified organic product and I source certified organic ingredients, but it's one thing to be a handler processor versus you actually raise organic crops. And I would love if you could just tell our listeners about what it means to have a certified organic farm and what the process is like to get and maintain that certification of saying that, you know, being able to say that your table grapes are certified organic. Yeah, yeah. It is probably the most well-documented two acres that we have <laughs> on the whole operation. <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> you know, it's kind of a quirky setup because I farm with my parents. And so they, their part of the farm takes care of the seed crops and all of that. Our part of the farm is the table grapes, the aronia, the cap and the fruit spread. And the table grapes are what's certified organic. So that's Mm -hmm. the two acres roughly that that we have certified organic. The first misconception that a lot of people will have on certified organic is that nothing is sprayed on. Well, a spray is just a tool. What matters is whether or not the products being applied are certified organic. Mm -hmm. A spray could be water. A spray could be water. Yeah. It could be any number of things that you can put on out there. And so every input that we use out there in the grapes has to be certified organic. And I have to report that to our certifying agency and get their approval before I use it because there are some things that are certified organic, but they are classified as a restricted use. So you have to meet certain criteria to be able to use that product. You have to show that you have, say it's a restricted use fungicide. You have to showcase that you have done X, Y, and Z to try and prevent the any fungal issues prior to using that through other management practices. And so there is a mountain of records. I have a binder that's probably six inches thick with my records for those two acres. Yeah. Everything that goes on out there, anytime I mow, anytime I go out there and prune, retrain, harvest, if I'm applying anything out there, I have to document what I did. I have to keep records of every input that's put on out there. And then uh, they come out once a year and do an inspection. This year, it was a virtual inspection mm-hmm. because there's still risks with COVID stuff going on and they're being abundantly cautious. Last year, it would have been a virtual inspection, but we had one half of the acreage that was just coming into certification and they have to have come out and physically viewed it, mm-hmm. certify it the first time. That one actually got tested because they said with COVID going on, we have so few people coming out. We have to test every on-site visit we make. And so they pulled fruit and ran it through their lab to do a test looking for any prohibited substances. Oh, wow. I have- 
four-page report of every imaginable chemistry they could be looking for under the sun, all single space, double columned, four pages, and nothing was found. Zero. Wow. Um, every last thing. But those are the kind of in-depth hurdles that you have to be going through with organic certification is they can test when they come out and inspect. And you're certified by Oregon Tilth, right? Yep. Yep. Certified through Oregon Tilth. There's a number of different certifying agencies out there and it's a USDA program, but all those different agencies are certifying to USDA standards. I've really loved working with Oregon Tilth. They have been, I can't recommend them enough. They were very personable and great to work with over the phone. Anytime I had questions, I can get through to them and they'll answer my questions and get me good to go. They've been wonderful to work with, but it is something that you have to take real seriously. It's a lot of record keeping. Yep. They go through all of those records. They check my harvest records, my cooler inventory, my sales invoices, and they will do an audit of those to make sure that the yields for the crop match up with uh, the expected range of where they should be. Mm-hmm. They check to make sure that I actually had the crop harvested before it was sold out there to and delivered to a store. They're looking for any instances where there could be any kind of fraud that would happen where you co-mingle, take conventional grapes and mix them in with organic. They're looking for any any possibilities for somebody to cheat the system or there to be fraud. And mm-hmm. they they have to in that. They have right. to look at every operation. And for the most part, people want to always do the right thing. Oh, you yeah. Know? But they always, they have to double check it. And yeah. any, because- anytime you have a price premium for something, there's going to be somebody out there that tries to game the system. Yeah. But they do a fantastic job of making sure that that doesn't happen. Right. And we always, you know, it's another layer of transparency for us because when we can't be in the store to tell our story, that organic symbol shares about as much of our practices as we can do without standing there and talking, you know, and through our signage and everything else, we can talk about what we do. But our goal is just to be very transparent mm-hmm. with customers and anyone out there on on how we grow stuff and how we farm. Oh, yeah. And that's part of the reason why we do so much social media, too, is it lets us kind of tell our story mm-hmm. and document the day to day. But Mike has done such a good job with the table grapes and, you know, with them being organic, that also means there's so much handwork that goes in with them, like hand weeding, you mm-hmm. know, mowing and stuff. You're not just going out there and spraying. You're yeah. um, not that conventional farmers go out and do that anyway, but like you have to be so conscious of how you're doing things and how you're going to get the work done. And anyway, you do a great job with, with that. the tools that I have at my disposal with organic certification. I can't play catch up. I have to be out in front of any issue before Mm -hmm. it happens because if I fall behind, the crop's gone. And early on, as I was learning how to handle this crop, I've had that happen to me. I've had things where I fell behind on it and the yields suffered considerably, but it was a great learning experience. It happened small. It happened on a small amount of grapes and I was able to take those lessons and do better each year after. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's really interesting to learn about. I'm also curious about with a fresh produce product, what was it like to get into retailers and what does it like to get ready to be in in a retailer, like with the table grapes? Like, I guess I'm a a little more familiar with the, you know, the CBG package piece, getting those on shelves, but I've never seen the process of getting a, a fresh produce to the shelf of a store and selling it in. Can you tell us about that process? Yeah. So we didn't know what we were doing either. <laughs> anyway, in, in 2016, we decided we really want to start taking these to fresh market. And we had identified the stores that we really would like to be in and and the customer base that we would like to have. And so we actually reached out to New Seasons Market to the produce buyer. And luckily, he's been 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 personable, quick to get back to us. And he wanted to meet us. So we took our grapes in and had him try because he wanted to see, (laughs) you know, literally taste the fruit and meet us and know the farmer behind the food. And we told him, you know, we're transitional organic because at the time we didn't have our certification, but we were working towards it. And he just worked with us the whole way through knowing, you know, our goal was to get certified. And he just kept putting up, you know, we started out in a small number of stores and we've just been kind of growing every year. Mm -hmm. And he's really kept us on and all of the produce managers have really liked us because, you know, Mike is very, very picky on 
quality. And he were hand harvesting the grapes and taking them in as quickly as possible. And well, in that yeah. first that first year of meeting with him and getting this set up, it took a certain amount of uh, either stupidity or courage <laughs> on our part to do this because he wanted to try the fruit, which meant it needed to be ripe before we could take it in there and meet with mm-hmm. them. Once it's ripe, I have roughly one week where it will be at peak out in the vineyard before mm-hmm. it starts to go downhill. And if I get it in, we have a cooler now that we can hold it in. It can hold for up to a month at most, but we, we move, move it quick. quickly. We move it quick. But that first year we had no cooler and it was picked straight from the yeah, yeah straight from that. the vineyard, loaded on a pickup and taken in off to the stores. Yeah. <laughs> and so there was no room for error and no safety net or backup plan. It was this has this to is, work. This is perishable. <laughs> we gotta get off the vine and into the store. Right. Right now. Right. It was that was crazy. I, I forgot about that. But yeah. And and so we just were, like Mike said, either brave or just went into it blind or whatever. But we, we made it work and we kept contacting buyers and we built such good relationships with the buyers that we have now that, you know, like last year, we lost half of our crop because of the wildfires and oh, smoke. Wow smoke and ash taint. And we just kept communicating with him. Hey, you know, this is what's going on. This is what's happening. And he, because he knew us and had a relationship with us, he, he knew what was going on and, Mm -hmm. and he's always worked with us. And so that's, you know, maybe that should be part of our answer too, is honestly, like the building of the relationships with the, with the buyers, with the produce managers has been, and, and with the fruit spread too, that has been the most important and the biggest key to our business is we have really been as personable as possible, been as easy to reach as possible and have communicated as clearly and transparently as possible. And in a lot of ways, it's really saved our bacon during hard times and hard years. And we make sure to always do our best to make things right. If the, from my end, if those grapes aren't up to snuff, they don't go in. Right. You know, as soon as we started picking up smoke damage in them. We said, no, no more. No, I had, shoot, I had my dad trying to argue with me on it. We had some friends of the family that tried them and said. They they taste fine, but you know. they're okay, but it's our name on them. It's Mm -hmm. reputation. And also during that whole time, we we harvest everything ourselves. So it's just the family doing Mm -hmm. it. So during like the wildfires, we didn't have any employees or anything out picking and we wouldn't have because it was so smoky. But we knew we had to go out there and save our crop ourselves if it was going to happen. And we were able to save some, but there was just so much that we lost. Yeah. And, and you know, we j- people were still, understanding of it. They really were. Yeah, I can still remember going out there with the foliar feeder, turning the fans on, not putting anything on. Just turning the fans on, trying to blow ash off the clusters to try and salvage as much as we could. The sky was beet red and it was half black out there. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's really scary. Yeah. Yeah. It was. Yeah. We never want to repeat that ever again. That was probably the most stressful thing that's happened on the farm that I can remember. And, and, you know, like so many people in our area, we had to evacuate and everything else, but I will say we're so lucky because Mm -hmm. we didn't lose anything. And so really other than a little crop, but that's nothing. Yeah. We didn't lose our home. We didn't yeah. We're, we're okay. And I just feel our heart really goes out to all the people that are still trying to recover from that because I cannot even imagine. Yeah. Wow. I'm also wondering, just as a very logistics oriented person, like how do the grapes go from the field to the store? Did they, how did they get packaged? You mentioned the cooler and then how did they end up on the shelf? Right now, everything is delivered in bulk, which suits us great. It's less packaging. It's less waste. Yeah. It gets picked into field totes that are 25 pound plastic boxes. We uh, weigh each of those before it goes into the cooler. So it goes straight from the vineyard, hired feet up the driveway to our cooler. We set up a table and a scales. They all get weighed to be exactly at 25 pounds or a couple of hundredths over. And then they go straight into the cooler. And then from there, it's load up the pickup with the orders for the morning. And it's usually me, sometimes me and my dad that will uh, drive them out and make a loop delivering from store to store, taking them what they need and then picking up any empty lugs they have that are uh, kicking around at the store so that we can get them back to the farm, get them sanitized and back into rotation to keep on picking. Wow. 
I love that. So cool. I asked this question to all of our guests. What's a part of the the job? Either it can be related to the fruit spreads or the farm, but what's something that's oddly satisfying? Something it may be kind of mundane or someone else may not notice it, but to you, you're just like, oh, I love this piece of the process or this part of the season. I was talking to Mike about this earlier. And I think for me, like it's labeling the jars. Like mm. It's so simple and, you know, something that you just kind of take for granted. But I look at it and I'm like, okay, it's a finished product. Like it is ready to go and it's done. And then I think, okay, the next stop is a store shelf or I send it to a customer. And that's pretty cool. You're kind mm-hmm. of finalizing the process. Mm-hmm. What about for you? And for me, as cold and miserable as it can be out there at the time of year we have to do this, the pruning and retraining on the grapes, it goes from this woolly, chaotic mess out there with all the last year's canes and vines up everywhere through the trellising. And we're cutting out all of that that we don't need and saving back the four canes on each plant that we're going to use for next year to grow our crop on. Mm-hmm. Getting them trained down so that they're nice and ordered and where they're supposed to be and tied down. And to look back and go from just a woolly, messy, chaotic patch of grapes to a nice, orderly, everything's in its place where it should be. It's really satisfying to do that. And it's really personal. You've got your hands on every vine out there that's going to bear fruit. You're laying it down to where it should go. You're bending and twisting on it. Just it's a very personal experience to have your hands on every single vine out there on every piece of fruit that's going to leave the farm. Yeah. Wow. Those are both great. I love those. And then one of my favorite questions, I have to know, what are your favorite teas? Yeah. So I love tea and our friends make it. And they own a business called Farmhouse Teas and they make Aronia Plumberry Tea. And I actually, it's my favorite tea. I'm biased because we grow the Aronia berries, <laughs> but it's so good. And they also make, one of my other favorites is their oh peppermint, their peppermint patty. I love peppermint tea. And what's, what is your favorite? Those are both great. Yeah. They're both in my list of favorites. I've always liked a good matcha as well. Oh, matcha. Mm. Yeah. 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 I'm actually drinking some farmhouse tea right now. So. Oh, nice. They're such a cool company. Yeah, they are awesome. I'm drinking uh, one of the lemon flavors and but I do want to try the one with the aronia berries. That sounds delicious. Yeah, it's great. Is there anything else that you wanted to share before we go into tips and drags? We just love what we do. Honestly, we love the products that we make and that we grow. I can honestly say, you know, for the fruit spreads, we use them every day. And Mm -hmm. it's something that I'm proud that we that we make and I'm proud to use them and I'm proud to give them to people. I'm proud to share them because I feel like when we crack open a jar or when we send a jar out, people are really getting a part of our farm. They're really getting a part of our story. Mm-hmm. And they're, you know, we don't grow all of the berries, obviously, that go into them because we just kind of grew, outgrew that stage. But we source from farmers that we know, that we trust, that we have a really good relationship with. And so I feel like we're sharing their story too and parts of the Willamette Valley. And it's just it's, it's just showcasing the yeah. great phenomenal fruit that can be grown here. Yeah. Some of our absolutely fantastic neighbors that are growing some of this great fruit. Yeah. As well as our story. Right. Because at the end of the day, you know, and it's so funny because at just the end of the day, it comes down to relationship and what kind of relationships you have with whoever you're working with, with your customers and just that transparency Mm -hmm. and and trust. So I just thank you so much for inviting us and asking us so many great questions. And it's so fun to it's so fun to share our story and to kind of bring up some memories, too, Mm -hmm. because there's some stuff that I just didn't remember. So, yeah, that's awesome. I love it. I've loved I've loved chatting with you and learning more. This is this is great. So our last segment is tips and dregs. So tips being the sweet part of the tea. So something that was great or that was kind of a highlight for you and you know, the last week or so and then dregs being kind of the 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 granules left in the bottom of the teacup, something you maybe aren't super excited that happened. We usually start with dregs so that we can end on the high note of tips. And if you want me to go first, I can start. Yeah, you go for it. Okay, I'll start with my dregs and then and then we can go back and forth. So for me, mine is silly, but I've been getting into painting more and I love to sit outside when the weather's nice and get out my canvas and just paint. And I had my 
playlist going and I was just really in the in the zone enjoying the weather and all of a sudden my the the wireless headphones I have you know a lot of headphones or stuff when they get low there's like a kind of a robotic voice like Siri or something that says like battery low and it it not so much like a human voice but this this voice was someone who was clearly grumpy and seemed to have been forced into a recording saying, oh, no. please go charge your battery. And I, and it was so jarring <laughs> that I'm just in the zone listening to my music. And all of a sudden, there's just this woman's voice that's very angry saying, please go charge your battery. And I was like, I have never had an electronic do that to me. So oh, man. <laughs> it was funny, but also just kind of a, it interrupted my creative process. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. How about for you guys? What are some, what are your dregs? I guess like from the business side of things, I have been working through a lot of costing things and our costs have went up 25% in the past oh, wow. month with glass and tin and labor and and so we're trying to figure out what do we do next? And so that's kind of been a kind of been a bummer, but we're gonna yeah. figure it out. But you know what? It's a solvable problem. It will be okay. <laughs> What about for you? Wow. It's no uh, big secret for anybody living in Oregon that we have been having a heck of a drought year this year. Mm-hmm. Those extremely high temperatures did us no favors on our crops either. Uh, mm. We've gotten through our grass seed harvest, but on average, our yields were anywhere from one third to two thirds of where the crop should have been. Oh, wow. And so it's a massive hit. However, I've heard of other grass seed growers around the area that would have been very, very happy to have seen yields as high as what we've got. So everybody's everybody's kind of in the same boat and it's mm-hmm. hitting across about every crop that is grown out there, not just grass seed, but everybody's been dealing with losses from this. So that's been our, uh, on the farm production side of things, our drag for the oh last several months now. Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. I've been hearing similar news from Eastern Washington with harvest season about the mm-hmm. the crop yields. So that's, yeah. that's tough after a drought, such a big drought year. Yeah. Well, all right. So we'll end on the high note of tips. So for me, this is so silly, but I had never been camping before until at age 30 until um, a couple of weekends ago. And a couple of friends of mine took me camping and it was like, you know, we pulled up the car and we had our campsite. We were at the Riverside campsite near Detroit Lake. And I was like, well, this is great. This is just like a picnic where that lasts a long time where you sleep on the (laughs) ground in a tent. And but I had just such a great time. It was so wonderful. There was no cell service. I, you know, I was able to read my book. I went kayaking out on Detroit Lake. My friends have a cute puppy who just wanted to sit on my lap. And so it was just a very relaxing, wonderful experience. So I've now I've I've done camping before. And I don't know that I feel super experienced, but it was a fun bucket list item to cross off and it wasn't nearly as intimidating as I had expected. <laughs> oh, that's awesome, Jesse. That's great. Yes. My my high point for the week, I have a couple of them, is my son did swimming lessons and he was really nervous and I was nervous for him and he did amazing and had a Aww. great time. I'm super proud of him. And also I finished our micro batch of Aronia Hascap. And that to me every year is just kind of a symbol that we've crossed into summer and that spring mm. over. And it's just so fulfilling to have that done and to make the fruit, preserve the fruit. So that's that's my high point. What about for you, Mike? Back onto the farm production side of things. All of our equipment ran really smooth through the first uh, stages of harvest here. The nice. Seed, everything swathed really nice and easy. The combine ran really nice and easy. And it is a huge blessing when things just behave themselves in go nice and smooth and easy and uneventful. I really enjoy that. And we've been hearing some rumblings of the price on some of the seed crops going up because of the short supply. So Mm. even though the yields were down, there's a glimmer of hope that we'll not be hit quite as hard as we thought we might. Yeah. Yeah. Equipment running the way it's supposed to, like an uneventful day during harvest, like that was always a good day when just everything yes. does what it's supposed to. So yeah, and fingers crossed that the, the prices can stay in a good good spot. That's yep. Those yep. are great. 
Well, thank you both so much. It was wonderful to talk with you. I could talk about farming and food all day long, so I'll, we'll let you go. It would be so fun to come visit the farm sometime if you guys are actually up to that. That sounds amazing. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. please do. We would love that. And thank you for taking the time to talk with us. So it was, it was really fun. Thanks for joining today, strangers. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. The tea consumed on today's episode is by Farmhouse Teas. It's called Lamplighter Lemonette, an herbal organic loose leaf tea. It is a blend for calm, rest, and repose. And it's a lemony herbal tea, and it's dotted with Oregon-grown pink bachelor buttons and local organic apples. It was super refreshing, super peaceful, a very nice, calming brew to have while recording a podcast. And as mentioned during the episode, there are a few teas that Farmhouse Teas and Mount Hope Farms collaborate on with ingredients. And so those will be listed in the tea library on iroscorner.com, where you can check out the teas recommended by myself and all of our guests. If you like today's episode, please like, subscribe, share, support us on Patreon, whatever you would like to do to help continue to see more content from Iro's Corner. In the words of Uncle Iro, While it is always best to believe in oneself, a little help from others can be a great blessing. Did you hear that? He's definitely drinking tea and thinking about five-star reviews. If you have any questions about today's episode, you can reach out on any of our social media accounts or hello at iroscorner.com. See you next time, strangers.